Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Those, of course, dear listeners, were the dulcet tones of the Russian National Anthem, formerly known as the Soviet National Anthem, often played by the Red Army Chorus. And as one of my friends in Eastern Europe used to joke, held over in Hungary for 30 years, the Red Army Chorus. That is our salute to Congressman George Santos, and now we found out he's got a Russian oligarch uncle. But we'll get back to that later. Right now, Brother Gibbs, we have a special treat, a return engagement by popular demand who did we bring in to untangle the rubble that is now the house republican conference well well, first of all i think you should just admit to listeners that we just simply recorded the ringtone on your phone of the russian national anthem but great uh only when you and x are calling that's (laughs) that's it i i pay homage to your ideology but yeah who do we have today we are joined by doug high who is a former rnc communications director a um uh, he understands the thinking, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, of the Republican House Caucus uh, and and how it is animating Republicans on Capitol Hill. And we thought uh, he was on a few weeks ago and thought, like, let's have him back to discuss now that the uh, now that the smoke has begun to clear. What does this all mean for what I think, Murphy, is the animating political relationship of 2023? Right. How. House Republicans play against uh, President Biden, how President Biden plays against House Republicans. That sets up, to me, everything that also happens in 2024. I think it's the politics to set up the presidential. Totally agree. It's also the politics of governing. And I can tell you from personal experience, nobody has been slumped over at 3 a.m. More bar stools at the old Bullfeathers or Tortilla Coast than Hill Rat, Doug High, who also, back in the, the good old days, was a deputy chief of staff to uh, a Republican majority leader, Eric Cantor. So he's seen this world from the inside. Welcome back, Doug. It, it's good to be with you. Just we'll start with a correction. The Capitol Lounge and the tune-in, yes, Bull Feathers and Tortilla Coast, never, <laughs> absolutely okay. never. I don't know. I love Tortilla Coast as an intern. Um, I, I, I seem to remember some crumpled bills in the mid-90s and bail, but I will take Man. you at your tune-in for sure. I think you've got a tune-in tattoo. You make me want, uh, I now want a burrito and some queso for lunch. Uh, I'm having sort of Tortilla Coast flashbacks from an intern day. Absolutely. That's the one tragedy of California. We we have great Mexican food here, uh, but we don't have Tex-Mex. And uh, I miss it. Savvy listeners will remember Head's Barbecue even before Tortilla Coast was over there on the uh, house side. So. Yeah, and there used to be a place in Arlington that my old friend Mike Birch and I used to go to called Speedy's, which was magnificent. And then somebody had to build a a, a huge office tower to house uh, associations and other other leeches upon the palace. But anyway, let's let's get to the rubble here. I was tempted to call for a moment of silence for my old political hack friend, former pollster, former operative. We worked together at the NRCC many years ago. Turned into first-rate grown-up congressman Tom Cole, chairman of the Rules Committee, the traffic cop to get anything on the floor or not, how the leadership runs the House. He'll be sitting there watching some of his members on rules playing with tires, denouncing the metric system, because part of the big deal for McCarthy 
uh, gave the Freedom Caucus some seats there, which gives them really a Swiss Army knife to make trouble. One of many things. So, Doug, where do we, where do you think we are, and what are you hearing from some of your friends and kind of the old bull chairman world that actually try to run the asylum there about this new world order we've got in the house. And Doug, let me give you yep. one other quick assignment because Murphy knows it, you know it, I know it, but give us 10 seconds on what the house rules committee, it's not yeah. like uh, th- this is not the cop that used to stand out by Longworth and give out jaywalking tickets. This is something a, a little bit more uh, uh, I- interesting and quite frankly, impactful on the policy process. Yeah. The house rules committee is, is potentially the most important committee in the house. And your process isn't sexy, but the House Rules Committee is all about process. It's basically where every bill goes through to determine whether or not it's going to get to the floor and how it gets to the floor. What are the rules? So we talk about an open rule versus a closed rule, which most voters don't know about. And God bless you for not knowing about it. Um, <laughs> will there be amendments allowed? If so, under what scope? And this is every bill that comes to the floor goes through this committee. Yeah, because the great thing about the House is almost maybe maybe this present scenario that we're not gonna, that we're going to discuss is certainly doesn't fall into this. But most of the time, everything in the House is governed by the majority, right? Mm-hmm. And the House Rules Committee decides, okay, we're going to vote on HR, whatever. They're going to be two amendments. They're not going to be ten amendments. It's not the Senate where you get to just anybody can raise their hand and get a vote. Uh, this is something that's very coordinated. And and vary down the line of of exactly what you can expect. They can decide the trouble they want other members to get into. They can protect their members from it. And I think right now we're in a kind of a brave new world where the people that were animating that fight against Speaker McCarthy, they want to see more votes. They want to see let's eliminate the income tax. Let's balance the budget. Right. They they want to be able to put amendments out there and force votes on their stuff, which by the way, the minority party always wants to do, but rules is about shutting all that down. It's kind of like when you fly to Berkistan, you're on the plane, you get off, you're across the world. But before you go through that customs line and that uh, immigration line, flash your passport, you're not in the country. That's rules. It's the last stop, and it's how the leadership controls everything. But now, instead of having loyal leadership people there, you got some of these Freedom Caucus people are very. We're gonna we're gonna maybe team with Democrats to get a working majority on a vote, go crazy for a day, and attach crazy amendments and force a floor vote on them. Right? Isn't that the biggest theory? Or totally block stuff by deadlocking the committee uh, so they, they can't move to a rule to move to the floor and get the vote the leadership wants. Sure. You know, once once the speaker is elected, uh, the first thing is voted on is what's called the rules package. So this happens every two years. And whenever there's a change in uh, the party leadership or, or which party is leading Congress, the rules package is a reflection on the previous party's rule of Congress. And because we've gone back and forth so many times, also, the previous time that party uh, was in power. And so what we've seen on this, a lot of what McCarthy, as it's been explained, is, you know, um, negotiating away uh, quite often is actually reasonable. He's talking about devolving power away from the speakership into committees. So if you're a committee chair or some committee chair, you actually like this rules package, regardless of what you think about, say, the Freedom Caucus or, you know, House moderates who have always talked about flexing their muscles, but never really did until this point. You almost got the sense that they didn't know where the house gym, uh, which Mike, you and I have fought about in previous <laughs> incarnations. 
Right. Um, that they even knew where it was. And I they- should explain that. I created a TV show for CBS called Ways and Means set in a three-vote majority Congress of all this kind of intrigue. And Doug was an advisor on the show, and we had a lot of fun. And after January 6th, they didn't want a political show on TV. So Doug, Patrick Dempsey, and I, and a lot of great actors were uh, unable to bring to you the intrigue of the House. Well, the great thing is, is you're probably like, oh, yeah, House majority with only three votes. That sounds crazy. That would never happen. And then all of a sudden we we had 100 stories. And then all of a sudden and then all of a sudden it's like real life. Oh, my God. The budget just failed because of an ingrown toenail. The guy had to go to the podiatrist and miss the vibe. It's unbelievable. (laughs) But anyway, let's get back to uh, Doug and the new world of stronger chairman, which I agree could be good. But also the Freedom Caucus holding a big monkey wrench that they could use whenever they feel like it. So. Tom Cole is the new House Rules Committee chair. Not only is he as he an old steeped Paul uh, in, in the classic in the classic sense, you know, he was political director at NRCC and all of this. He knows congressional races better than maybe any member of Congress does. He and Tom Emmer, uh, who's the, the new whip, who's come from NRCC, um, he's part of the old guard, uh, right. but he's got the the new vanguard uh, that that'll be stacked in the Rules Committee as well. And what it means is uh, going into this process of how do we bring a bill to the floor? Uh, what is the amendment process? Uh, it's going to be a really big deal. And what we've seen over the um, past four years, and even before that, when Republicans had the houses, quite often it was a closed rule, no amendments. And members want to bring up amendments and they want to vote on amendments. Or in the flip case, they don't want to vote on on certain amendments. So it makes this process uh, potentially more fraught but also more responsive to members. That's a good thing. That's also potentially a bad thing. It can't be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm for democracy until the Frankenstein mob breaks out, but we're seeing. And, you know, to give people another look at sort of the House Rules Committee and the process is not only does the committee decide, okay, on H.R. 1000, we're going to have two amendments, but then before the bill can come to the floor, the House votes on that rule, right? So, You need 218 or you need a majority of those present to pass the rule and go to the debate. What Doug is saying here is if that rules committee says we're only going to do two amendments and and the Freedom Caucus says we want eight, they can bring the rule down pretty easily. Right. And so I I have a I have a great feeling that we're going to see a lot of Republican on Republican violence, if you will, on in, in this sense, because. You're going to have, they're going to lose a lot of those battles inside the rules committee and they're going to fight them out on the floor, much as we saw for 15 votes with a House speakership. One of the things that, you know, certainly we dealt with when I, when I worked in House leadership is sometimes, and the Freedom Caucus was not even fully existing at this point, but was starting to kind of, you know, form, um, was a threat to bring down the rule. And just the mere threat of bringing down the rule on the House floor, if you're in the majority, the last thing you want to do is lose a vote on the floor because it demonstrates you have no control. So we would pull a bill before it even came to the floor, sometimes just on the threat that the rule could be rejected. So this is a, this is a problem that Republicans are going to have. Again, democracy is, is a dirty business sometimes. Well, again, that's why I missed the boss era. You know? but, <laughs> but moving on, I'll just say I would not be surprised if after a few months of tisk-tisking and pearl-clutching and being shocked, shocked, there's gambling in the casino, the Democrats will start saying, oh, wait a minute, Freedom Caucus is trying to force an up-down vote on the floor on eliminating algebra as a communist satanic plot. Why don't we give them three votes on rules and let's force a vote? 
you know, let democracy happen here. We're going to open the rules committee wide open and, and create a majority with some freedom caucus people to, we, we'd love to have floor votes on this crazy stuff. Yep. Murphy, are you suggesting that there's also shenanigans inside the casino where there's gambling? You know, there might even be cynicism in the Democratic Party. Now, I know <laughs> I, I know you're going to uh, stop crying. You call it cynicism. I call it campaign ads. But sure, <laughs> you, we'll call it whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. No, I, uh, stay tuned. Robert said something that the, interesting that, that needs to a bit more expansion is a 218 majority of those present voting. And right. so one of the things in this Congress um, that was very popular with Republicans is that there will be no more proxy voting. Now, that yeah. also comes with a challenge. That means yeah. you've got to be there. And, you know, as we saw with the speaker's vote, um, a couple members of Congress had to leave. They had medical procedures that they had to deal with. They had a family right. emergency. Uh, you know, you talk about one hangnail. Well, that could be the margin of vote. So Republicans have to be a lot more organized and also see these problems coming in advance. Uh, than typically you would otherwise expect, expect. There's no proxy voting anymore. Yeah, when you were there, Doug, how many uh, major votes, how many times did you have a full house on the floor voting? Oh, rarely. There were proxies, but it almost never happens that everybody can be there. No, and, and you have members who will miss votes for legitimate reasons and sometimes illegitimate reasons, basically meaning they're lazy or their staff didn't tell them, hey, the, the, the bell rang five times, it's time to go vote. Right. Free tequila night over at the Railroad Association. We actually, as you remember from the pilot, we had an uh, with, we had our guys in a three-vote thing. The Repubs lose a committee vote because the senile old chairman, played by mm -hmm. the brilliant Harris Yulin, uh, got confused, jumped in a cab, and went off to talk to Nixon. Yeah. Um, you know, and so they're one short and everything tumbles down. So, you know, you might even see, I think you're going to see a game here of predatory special elections, which is like, Hey, we know that member, uh, hates it here is on their fourth divorce. Why don't we lean on the national aluminum foil association to offer them an 800 grand a year job to vacate the seat and win the special. Mm -hmm. Cause uh, that kind of sniper work now could be incredibly effective. I mean, there, there's a whole new playbook coming, is my point. It's going to be something. It sounds like the transfer portal for college sports, but yes. Yes. <laughs> awesome. That's going to be great. I think we should yeah. combine the two of those. Learn Chinese. So this is a, this is, let's segue into a real world example because it got set up late last week. And it's, it's, it, again, it's one of the biggest political fights of the year. People thought it was going to take place late summer, early fall. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen comes out and says, we're approaching the debt limit. I'm going to start rearranging some stuff and uh, we're going to do extraordinary measures to, to start to pay our bills. But, but Doug and Mike, we pulled this sort of summer fall fight into the near term. Um, and what, given what we've just discussed, and, and there's a fascinating uh, uh, editorial in the, the Wall Street Journal on the editorial board of like, okay, Republicans, What's the end game mm -hmm. for this fight on the debt ceiling? Because what the Wall Street Journal is, is freaked out about and what Wall Street writ large is freaked out about and the larger economy is freaked out is Republicans are going to, you know, they're going to charge the castle on this with no plan as to how mm -hmm. to take the castle. And what that's going to mean is several days, a week, two weeks of real genuine economic uncertainty. Uh, before they end up folding and approving an increase in the debt limit. So, yep. it, which means just as the economy is, is we're, we're ridding ourselves of inflation and, 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 and averting a recession, we've got this made up 
kabuki dance where Republicans seek to raid the castle with no plan. So what, what, how does this play out? And by the way, what's the plan? Well, I don't think anybody knows how it plays out. And in part, because there's not really a plan at this point, you know, one of the things that we've, we talked about when I was in house leadership, uh, the 2013 government shutdown being the best example of this is sometimes members of Congress need to touch the stoves and find out that stove's really hot, whether it's a Ouch. gas stove or induction, yeah. we can talk about in another context, but <laughs> they need to touch the stove, get burned so they know not to do it again. And we're not talking about a stove when it comes to debt limit. We're talking about touching the nuclear reactor. And the biggest mistake I think that Republicans can make in this circumstance, which they certainly made in the um, early years when John Boehner had taken over, is overestimating their ability to do things. Uh, Boehner would say that uh, we had the House majority. We didn't have the Senate. We certainly didn't have the White House. Boehner would say that we have one half of one third of government. Uh, but to some Republicans, the one who used the word fight and as many times in a sentence as they can without really a plan to <laughs> land a punch, win the round, or, or much less win the fights, is overestimating the leverage you have when you just have one chamber. And that's the yeah. same situation Republicans find themselves in now with a lot more capital F fighters uh, than we had even back then in 2012, 2013. It sets up a potentially perilous thing politically for Republicans, both within their conference and the party as a, as a whole. And then obviously nationally, as uh, we start to approach a presidential election year. A friend of mine in the House back then used to say, well, we have a brilliant plan to break the Democrats' little finger with our face. And, you know, that's yeah. kind of what happened. I, uh, yeah, this one, well, first of all, back to cynical Democrats, because I can't resist. Uh, Secretary Yellen did a great job of, well, I'm leaving for the Treasury Department bunker now, uh, because clearly the world financial order will soon disintegrate, thanks to Kevin McCarthy. That, you know, so there, there's, in the old days, everybody would do kabuki theater. And at the end, you know, okay, a deal would be made. And so I think the financial markets got uncomfortable, but used to that. The problem is the kabuki singers now have real swords and are running around and really look like they want to stab somebody. And so I would suggest that my dear friends in the House Republican Conference, Google, and I know that's a stretch, it's no true social, but, but get a search engine and look up Liz Truss who was elected essentially by the grassroots of the UK Conservative Party, of which I am a, now a voting member, by the way. They let foreigners <laughs> in. So I'm, I'm now going to speak on behalf of the entire Tory uh, party. Um, anyway, so Trust wins. She has kind of a clumsy financial plan that's not funded. They announced it in a very clumsy way. So it was kind of clumsy upon clumsy, though I will say there was some good stuff in it. Bottom line is they scared the financial markets. The financial markets decided to scare the hell out of the... Uh, country, and she was the shortest serving prime minister in the history of the United Kingdom. So note to Republicans, careful running around the dynamite factory of lit matches here. Here's the problem, Murphy. It's open mic night at the Kabuki uh, well, I know. That's what I'm, I'm getting to with real swords. So, you know, they're, they're now, it, does that mean we're all going to be, you know, trying to, trying to eat shoe leather next week? No. Um, there's a lot of financial engineering trickery they can do to slow the crisis down and extend this into next year. But the problem is, it well, there are two problems. The first problem is, why take the risk? It is banana republic stuff. If we are the reserve currency. We get away with a lot because people think we actually know how to run our economy more or less. Uh, and so this crazy stuff directly undercuts that, weakens our country. It's crazy. Uh, so 
we're see we're going to have the the slowly I turn Niagara Falls step by step contest of all time now, and there's more uncertainty than ever. The people who want to put up the fight have more power than ever. And I'll finish. I'm sorry for the long diatribe. The the crazy thing, as much as I hate this behavior, and I want to I don't want to play dynamite uh, uh, volleyball with the debt ceiling. They're right. We have a huge debt crisis. Even, you know, sober right-of-center economists are all saying that the administration has absolutely no interest in debt reduction, and frankly, Trump didn't either. So the national debt is exploding. It's bad for our country, and our political system has no way to cut spending because everything is so important. You know, you deserve it. So we're heading, Kevin Hassett, a good economist, who advised John McCain, uh, I said today or yesterday, you know, we're on track to double the ratio of debt to our GDP. That's scary too. So the motive behind some of this Republican rage about spending uh, is legitimate. Uh, I just wish we could find an adult solution because we're heading toward a stupid train wreck. There's a sense in Washington right now that, well, a default on the debt ceiling can't happen because it's never happened before. And if we've learned anything in our politics in the past, say, six, seven years, it's Beware saying that something just definitely cannot happen because it often does. Well, and we flirted with it in 2011 because there was this idea of, to Murphy's point, like, wow, all of a sudden we've got to get the debt under control, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that for like eight years of the Bush administration, nobody was really that all, all that concerned about it. Party switched all of a sudden, oh my God, we've got to do something about this debt. And, and now- we almost rushed to it to 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 build off of Doug's analogy that um, it it wasn't the it wasn't the sophistication of the hand in the stove it literally was the face on the stove and uh, that did not go well and and it's interesting too I, I have two two interesting points I think to add to this I'm a little concerned that the House Republicans aren't really don't really understand the process of all this the Post had a very good story um, late last week that. House Republic. Some of the House Republicans were advocating, basically, in this process of the debt ceiling, separating the bills, if you will, and paying some of the bondholders so that the markets didn't freak out. Paying some of like the Pentagon's bills. Yeah, it's but, prioritizing but, the order is the theoretical idea. This is like the yeah. sci-fi show at the end. Well, in theory, if we cross the, you know, yeah. but it's very dangerous. Well, and here's the thing. Try this at home, okay, people? If you want to prioritize your bills because you're having a tough month, pay your power bill but not your cable bill and see if you get the NFL games on the weekend. Because you won't. Because you can't prioritize your bills. (laughs) People have credit, they have debtors, and they have to pay them. And that's why you see, and I think, again, this is how this animating relationship of the year is going to go. The White House has simply said there's not going to be a negotiation. There's only going to be a vote on a clean debt ceiling, and that's all we're interested in. And now we have, in the midst of open might night uh, at Kabuki Theater, now we've just got a, a wait and see. It's almost, it's going to devolve into it late at night, a staring contest as to who blinks first. All right. Well, um, I've got to slip out here and call the Bank of Singapore and check on my gold bars. <laughs> so yeah, there Swiss we go. Swiss bank, Murphy. You're a Swiss bank. I know that. We're going to have Kabuki with real swords with a cause, though. The spending thing is real, and I wish Biden were more responsible about it and more open to something. But the democratic politics is an interest group spending machine and it doesn't change. 
but hold on, let's be rational here. And I let, thought and, that one would and, wake you up. Yes, and Republicans <laughs> and Republicans have to stop pretending like tax cuts don't impact spending, because you, when you dramatically cut the revenues but have no desire to tackle actually tackle spending, you create enormous deficits like we had during Bush and during Trump. And so maybe that's uh, maybe that's part. And Republicans have been big big spenders too. Now that said. There haven't been any reckless tax cuts lately. I just sent my income tax check in, including to the Republic of California, 13% income tax. So I, I, the idea that our problem right now is a tax cutting spree is crazy. But I take your point about history. You didn't pay certain federal taxes because of a Trump tax cut and the extension of Bush tax cuts. But I think what you're setting up is, if, and if I was the House Republicans, and they've already talked about this as part of this rules package that, that Doug mentioned is, Getting back to the process of going through an appropriations process is rational, right? So what we mean by that is it used to be that all this stuff had to be done before the fiscal year. The committee chairs were animated on this. They wanted to get their bills through so that they could come together and have a discussion about this rather than go through a a trillion and a half dollar uh, omnibus bill. And if I'm Republicans, that may be the place that I want to tackle getting the discussion of debt entered into the political lexicon, not when, not playing apropos of your anthem, Russian roulette with the economy. I agree. When your drunken relatives write a billion dollars in checks, you don't burn down the bank to solve the problem. But we're, we've got to have a budget process that grows yeah, up. Yeah, no or doubt. Again, learn Chinese. That's one of the things that is in this Republicans rules package is no more omnibus appropriations bills. Yeah, Let's have a good. workable appropriations process, which if this were to happen, I'm slightly skeptical, if this were to happen, would be fantastic for how Congress governs itself. But don't hold your breath on that anytime soon. And just because we're doing the gobbledygook here, right now they get three people in a room and do a midnight crazy thing and slap it together, a thousand page bill nobody can read. You know, it's a train wreck. In the old days, each committee would run its world and it would be combined. So there were 70 people involved in the budget process, not not a handful at midnight, which is a good reform. Now, we got to the mess, not because the House said, hey, let's have a mess, but because the other process broke down with partisan bickering and everybody being dug in. Stay tuned as we pay some bills and you listen to some ads. You know what, Gibbsy? I think we are in big trouble. Uh Uh-oh. Because our wonderful sponsor, Helix, has an ad for us here. And you know how Axelrod gets when he can't do the Helix sleep ads. Because he is in love, 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 love with this Helix mattress. If he had to choose between his autographed copy of Das Kapital and the mattress, sorry, Marks, out the window you go. So why does he love the thing so much? I've been learning about it. I know it's premium, and I know it tailors the mattress to your unique sleep preferences. But tell us more, Professor. Well, as you said, Murphy, the Helix lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models. Know you'd like that. Mm, Yeah, that's me. A mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. So how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? That's my question. You take the Helix sleep quiz and find out your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And your personalized mattress is shipping straight to your door free of charge, Murphy. So I answer a bunch of questions online. It only takes me two minutes because I remember when Axelrod did this, he was a little dubious, but then he, he got the mattress and then he was delighted. 
because the way to learn about a mattress is to sleep on it in your house, not in some mattress store. So Helix offers you a 100-night risk-free trial. That's right, 100 nights. You try out your new Helix mattress, you see how your body likes it, and then you decide, your money, your power, if it's not the best fit. Because if it's not, after 100 nights, you get a full risk-free refund. I mean, that's an amazing deal. And Murphy, look, everybody's unique. Everybody sleeps different. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side. Models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach or back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to Mm. keep you from overheating at night. I'm telling you, If your spine, and I know your spine needs some extra TLC, (laughs) they've got something for you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination for comfort and sleep. Best of both worlds. And I'll, I'll tell you, that cooling, my wife... We have the only Arctic certified Admiral Perry comforter in all of California. And so the idea of a cooling mattress, I'm going to get on there and take that test. Axe has been after me to get one of these and it's time. Get on, take the quiz, test it out for 100 nights risk-free. I have a feeling you're going to end up being as much an evangelist as Axe is. It sounds so great, Gibbsy, but I have one question. Are we talking Chinese slave labor here? Ah, Murphy, perfect for you. Helix mattresses are American-made, and better yet, they come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model that you pick. Outstanding. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and, Murphy, two free pillows for our listeners. Those pillows have no political opinions. Go to helixsleep.com slash hacks. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So, Doug, before we get into the the next weighty subject, our good friend Representative George Santos and and his, and his uh, chicanery and all this, what what do you, walk us? What's your prediction for the next three months of this? Where do you see the train going? It's really hard to tell at this point. And does the train even leave the station? To be honest with you, it starts with the question that that began you know last week once Kevin you know won on the fifteenth ballot, which is. How do Republicans govern themselves? And, uh, you know, a lot of the reforms uh, that were put in the rules package, again, sound good and should be workable if they're workable. It's just not clear if they're going to be able to do that. And if so, what's the off-ramp then for Republicans? I think there are a lot more questions still uh, than there are answers. Yeah, I mean, the Weimar Republic looked great on paper, but it required goodwill, which they ran out of. Yeah, a lot of my friends on the Republican side, when I when I go through this argument of I don't know how they're going to govern, they always say, this isn't about governing. They're, that's not what they're there to do. And then I remind them, they run the House. I mean, they don't, yeah. they don't have a choice. So I guess, do you think, Doug, that they get the challenge on this? Do you think they understand that this isn't this isn't just, hey, we're, we're going to do a, you know, a motion to recommit and have everybody vote on something crazy and create a campaign commercial? We're not going to get into that, I promise. But like, do they get that they're now have to be, I'm not going to say part of the solution, but they have to be a genuine part of the process? Yeah, I think it really depends on who the they are. So you talk about some of the committee chairs, Tom Cole, certainly Patrick McHenry at Financial Services. These are your members who were there to do good, smart work and get things done. 
They don't want to go through this process and they certainly don't want to have a bad result from it. Uh, but can they get 218 votes in the House um, on something that's reasonable and rational, um, whether that's on the first vote or on the third vote? I just don't think we know at this point. We've got to go through this process. And I'm reminded of uh, something Paul Ryan said last week, which was uh, in an interview, he said the last words that John Boehner said to him uh, before Boehner left the Capitol was, remember, your job is to protect this house. You know, it, it is, the job of speaker isn't a majority leader or minority leader or anything resembling the Senate. You're a constitutional officer. It's a very different thing. And that's something McCarthy needs to be very mindful of. You're not just a party leader. And I'd say he gave away the speakership to win it institutionally. But we will see. Maybe it'll evolve in a good direction. I know I will say that I have an I'm pretty good authority that a lot of the old bull Republican chairmen are furious at Kevin over all this. But but they were quite happy to get waivers. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Let's pivot over to, to Comrade Santos, right? We now find out that he worked for a scam investment firm, essentially, I believe, funded and controlled by his cousin, a, wait for it, Russian oligarch. So this guy is the gift that keeps giving. But will he go away? I don't know. Can I just say, too, if you had yeah. just if you had made this a script and tried to sell this as a show, you also couldn't have sold this one because it wasn't realistic. And yet, here we are. Yeah, life imitates art. So, Doug, what, what's your take on this? I, I, you know, I can't walk down the street in lefty L.A. here without some nice person coming up. He lied. Shouldn't he go to jail for that? And I'm like, well, if liars were thrown out of Congress, we wouldn't have, you know, we'd have 42 members. So <laughs> Lorton would be full. The founding fathers knew that drunken taverns had to put that voice somewhere, so they invented the House. You know, he's got criminal problems, apparently, on the financial side not for lying, but for other stuff. So maybe that'll get them. But in a tight house, I don't think they give up the vote. They just replace them unless he's forced out legally. But what do you guys think? Look, th this guy is, is clearly the Guinness Book world record leader of outlandish lies, not just your, your garden variety lies. Everything that's made up from the double knee replacement for the volleyball team of the school that he didn't go to, uh, to some of the financial things. But it was so much of the coverage, and I, and I say this having been on CNN last night on this topic, was why are Republican leaderships calling on him to resign? And, you know, why is he still in Congress? I think it ignores, um, you know, the kind of the reality of, of what it is like to be a member of Congress. When you are elected a member of Congress, essentially, you have an unbreakable two-year employment contract. And practically the only way that that contract is null and void is if you resign of your own volition, which he does not seem to want to do, or if the House of Representatives has a, vo a vote where two-thirds of your colleagues expel you. And that vote has happened twice since 1980. And in both cases, it came after uh, representatives were convicted, not accused, not charged, not indicted, convicted of bribery and racketeering and very serious crimes like this. So for all of the, you know, all of the gossip and, and conversation and, and legitimate outrage um, that Santos has, has brought, if Kevin McCarthy, Elise Stefanik, Steve Scalise, and Tom Emmer had a press conference tomorrow demanding that Santos resign, there are no teeth to make that actually happen. So not only is he probably not going anywhere anytime soon, his incentive is actually to stay. One, he's getting paid. 
And we don't really know if he was getting paid before he was a member of Congress. And two, as a sitting member of Congress, he has some leverage here, not just politically, because we have a five-seat majority as opposed to a 25-seat majority where you could have more incentive to cast him aside, but also legally. Um, if, If he is charged with crimes or is negotiating with lawyers of what charges may come and whether there are pleas and so forth, a resignation is something that gives him, it would, be, would be a leverage point of if charges are reduced or dismissed or, or not filed, I should right. say, he would resign. So this is why I don't think necessarily he's going anywhere anytime yeah. soon. His incentive is to stay. There's a long history of these guys getting indicted, including a ton of Democrats who never resign. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to be dragged out in a straitjacket or handcuffs. But Doug, isn't the more likely scenario that the press conference you envision isn't happening, not because they aren't all largely chagrined by the fact that this absolute, there's a difference between a political liar and an absolute con artist. This is an mm-hmm. absolute con artist. The reason they're not having that press conference is in a four seat or five seat majority, you take out somebody in a plus eight Biden district mm-hmm. and have a special election right now. I got a pretty good feeling as to who's going to win that <laughs> right that's why we need his santos leadership for the next you know the right. criminal voice ought to be represented in congress you know it is the house of <laughs> the is, people a whole new caucus is going to speak for a million american felons right apropos to your point murphy about what mccarthy did to give away in order to keep the speakership this is just an extension of that this is just a little bit more of that because i can't actually imagine that even in their heart of hearts they want this guy to lead the news every night and, and and to be thought of as an equal in the House of Representatives. Yeah, but they can't afford to give the seat away. So what they want exactly. to do is That's what lock I mean. him in yeah. a box, have a little hole for his voting card to come out. They we and we know by the way, and this will get a lot of hate mail sent it all to Gibbs. I think if aliens came down and said, Ha, huh, we can affect time and space, we're gonna do a switcheroo here. Pelosi or Akeem Jeffries is speaker, they're up by four votes. And Santos is now a Democrat. They'd keep him too in this situation. How come every, you're just going back to like, I know the Republican Party is an absolute molten mess, but Democrats. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying it's just, just politics. It's disgusting in many ways, but the stakes are too high to have a guy who's a lying, you know, he, the, they can invest in, investigate and prosecute him. He, you know, on the fraud stuff, maybe he goes to jail. I hope he does if it's all true. But I don't think in this situation, either side would give up a seat to switch it to the other party. I think you're selling Nancy Pelosi short for what Doug said earlier. Is, <laughs> Come on, she grew up in Baltimore. She did. Politics. and you know, but, but she <laughs> understands the burden of being Speaker of the House and what the institution of the House involves that they're clearly not taking into account in, in keeping somebody like George Santos. I mean, the Nassau Republic, the Nassau County Republican Party is already I, I, said I agree that. with, look, I, I, I'll get my clerical collar and join you on all this. But the bottom line in a tight one like this, if it meant flipping the seat and the Dems pick up a vote because they're barely going to be able to hang on what they've got, I, don't th- I think either side would hang on to a Santos for the vote as long as they could because the alternative is the other party getting that vote in a special. We're seeing. Look, and Robert, I don't disagree with anything that, that you said. And yes, if Republicans had the election night, Murphy, that they, no, not really. I, I'm, I'm kidding. Just, I'm, I, joking. I, I'm joking. I think the hard politics of it is they hang on to the yeah. seat until they find a way to replace them with another hour or take the losses as far away as they can. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. I'm sorry. 
again, let's say the Republicans had that election night that they thought they were going to big house pickups and win the Senate. Yes, there'd be more, quote unquote, pressure and calls on Santos to resign. But the mechanism still isn't there until there's you know a motion to expel him, which right. if we, we've done twice since 1980. Again, after somebody's been convicted of federal crimes, right, right. and before that, didn't do until the Civil War. And so the reality is here: the the House ethics process is a slow one. Our yeah. legal process is a slow one. Right. And so we can all want George Santos to disappear, but yeah. he again, he essentially was handed a two-year employment contract. That can only be revoked under one circumstance, which is expulsion, or whether he decides yeah. to give it up. That's the reality. I totally agree. I don't I don't disagree. I mean, I think, you know, look, the House ethics process moves slowly because of the House ethics process. Well, the right? House doesn't want an ethics process. It's designed to be the rabble. And that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. Totally. And I I think you're right. I mean, there's there there are very few off ramps. Now, I do think if you had that press conference, I think the pressure would become so enormous. I just don't think I wouldn't reserve the House triangle to uh, to have that press conference anytime soon. You know, another thing that we're seeing pop up with Republicans, and we saw this um, over the weekend, uh, the the new chair of the, I don't know what the whole committee is called, but it's essentially the investigations committee. Oversight, I think. Representative Comer went through, a, you know, a list of the investigations that we know are coming in. It was probably more expansive a list than I think many had literally been thinking about. I mean, we know they're going to go through, they're going to do COVID stuff. They're going to, they're going to haul the world's preeminent scientist up there and try to outscience him. Good luck on that guys. Uh, let me know how that works, but they're really going to get into a lot about Joe Biden, a lot about Joe Biden's family, but we heard them even talk about, you know, donations to the university of Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania's Biden center on policy and diplomacy they're really going to go down the rabbit hole here in a way that I'm going to be interested to see how much they get off of a to the point we were making earlier a governing script here and and how much cuz I don't feel like the message from the 2022 election was we should do a lot more investigating well it it's all degrees you know a uh, smart investigations like gen 6 Right. Well done can work. But if it's just bloviating congressmen talking to Fox News correspondents, I'm not sure. I talked about this last week in the new world of politics of having a special committee on is Biden senile won't take a chunk out of them uh, in our new rule list, no decorum, uncivilized politics. But you're right. The last election was enough already, at least from independent voters. And the, will the Republicans in the House overplay their hand? <laughs> Doug, what do you think? Yeah, look, we should rename the committee the Government Reform and Oversight of the Other Party Committee, because that's yeah. the reality. Democrats didn't investigate Biden. Republicans didn't investigate Trump and on and on. And I think there were legitimate questions of one, a lot of the things that that um, they want to investigate. We should know how the COVID money was spent. We literally threw money at the problem in the right way because it was an unforeseen crisis that was thrust upon us. But we need to know what was done correctly, what was done incorrectly. And we're going to find a ton there. It's just the sure. reality of how government works in a panicky crisis. We spent the equivalent of World War II. So yeah. yeah, a lot of money, a lot of questions. But can they conduct a fair investigation that's credible or will it be the Hannity hour? Well, here's, I think, the, the challenge for the Biden administration on this. And that's been the news of the past few days. The news on the documents and how that's been handled. Right, right. We were going to pivot to that next, yeah. 
It's perfect timing for Comer and Republicans. As they're talking about investigations, all of a sudden we have, you know, Biden doing what he criticized to some extent, uh, criticized Trump for doing. And are they different circumstances? Sure. But the core Biden promise was, I'm competent and my team of pros will not make the mistakes right, that Donald right. Trump and his Adams family staff made. Right. <laughs> the Trump is built in. You expect clown stuff. Yeah. Biden's supposed to know what's going on. But every two days, like I think t- this morning they found a small nuclear weapon in the trunk of his vet in the garage. I mean, th- th- I think it's real kryptonite. And it's a, such a win for Trump. It's a win for Trump. Makes it harder politically, potentially, for the special prosecutor to file charges on Trump. Right. And the timing of this gives credence to Republicans as they're talking about what their investigations will be. I totally agree that it gives a big ball of string to Republicans for investigations. I'm not sure that it lets Trump off the hook legally. Maybe there is a big now, you know, it is uh, sort of that animal house uh, cafeteria scene of food fight and nobody really knows, you know, who started it and and all that. Um, you know, I do think there's th- the two things that are that are obviously crucial differences is intent and deception mm-hmm. and the intent of taking 300 documents that you knew you had and the deception of saying you didn't have them and not giving them back is quantifiably different than where Biden is. I think right now, though, Biden is in a sticky political position, a big challenge. I just was talking about this a second ago, and it's likely that by the time this drops later today, Biden will have had to have said something. They've got a they've got the prime minister from the Netherlands that's in town. And generally, you're going to have some sound from each of them sitting in the Oval Office. And and I think reporters are good. I don't I, I really don't think they're going to be enamored with U.S. Dutch relations. I think they're going to be focused on <laughs> tragically top secret documents. And, and my hope is that the president says something and starts to put a real fence around the timeline here, because I think. It, it it goes without saying that the White House has been extraordinarily sloppy in having to announce not once, not twice, but three times mm-hmm. that there have been documents found when we know at the very least they could have cut out at least one of those and probably two um, had they done a, a, a more thorough search more quickly of other places uh, in in sort of the Biden orbit. But um, and you see it, Republicans are playing the kabuki dance again here of. Hey, what about the visitor logs at your house in Wilmington? Right? Okay, they 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 know there aren't visitor logs, right? Like people don't keep visitor logs. Yeah, no, no. Look, they're, they're just being like Janet Yellen on. I hope you're all ready to start eating sawdust. But let me just take us on a little sidebar as as staff types. I am stunned that Biden world and God knows there are probably other examples out there in both parties that the the chiefs of the senior staff. After the Trump thing, can you believe he's got boxes of stuff in the basement of Mar-a-Lago? Um, let's check. You remember, remember Dolores, the chief, the deputy chief of staff, was a little loopy. She liked to hoard documents. Does anybody check the storage space? You know, you go through a little internal thing just to make sure. Remember right. the time you took the briefcase to the thing because they had to go to the other thing, and and did the aide get everything? You know, you you just look at your own thing because you know the error factor in government exists. And for the Biden guys not to be like on top of it preemptively, for a guy who's been vice president, been in government forever, it it just struck me as sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. And now they're going to pay a huge price because look, I'm with you, Robert. I think the Democrats will make the exhausting, 
argument to the editorial board of the New York Times, their shrine, about, you know, look, we're the good guy who did a few honest mistakes. He's the bad guy who stole a lot of crap, tried to bury it in his country club, lied about it, fought about it. And on the merits, huge difference. But in the politics of this, it, 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 it's now become, there's now some sort of equivalence in the political yeah. optics, which is yeah. such good news for vile Trump. Thursday to me, it reminded me of that political adage of when you're explaining you're losing. And yeah. yes, there are differences, the difference of sin of omission and commission, right? And if yes, Trump was a proactively bad actor in this, but Thursday, we had good economic news and that should have been the message of the day, which goes into the weekend, which means we're talking about it now for the White House. Instead, between Biden's terrible press conference and talking about his Corvette and all of that, and then the press briefing for Kareem going very badly, they were explaining. And what does that mean? They were losing. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I think the challenge, you know, if you read some of the TikToks over the weekend, they knew at the beginning of last week when they put out the statement on the first tranche of documents that they they knew that a second, that they'd already discovered a second one. I don't, I don't, I, I can't understand why you wouldn't put both of those out at right, the same time. Right. And mm-hmm. then to your point, Murphy, they should have been, somebody should have been searching boxes in October yeah. uh, and, and, or earlier in September and finding some of this stuff and getting it up and out, or at least burying it over the Christmas holidays and not waiting until the beginning of the year. I agree with you that, that it, it, it's a big political mess. And it's one that to your point, if you're explaining you're losing, I totally agree. I think to me, they've got to get as much of the timeline of this out as quickly mm-hmm. as they can, uh, explain as much as they can such that the chicanery that's going to happen on the Republican side, asking for things they know don't exist, that you get ahead of that. I think there's yep. there's there's one real big challenge with this right now is there's going to be this monumental tug of war inside of that building between the communications team and the lawyers right. who, are, who are going to have to, you know, yeah, the lawyers always. are going to say, there's a there's an active investigation. We can't say anything. The communicators are going to say, we have to say something. Because mm-hmm. to your right. point, Doug, you can't send the White House press secretary out there. I mean, she probably had two pages of guidance and you get past the second or third question, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, They've got to get that out there. You're totally right. And the modern media equation we have now is perfect for the shamelessness the R's are going to bring to this because yep. they will just start the stop beating your wife routine. Well, we believe uh, the committee would like to have drug dogs check the garage. We think Hunter Biden might have his massive heroin and cocaine stash there and gold coins. What do you say? No. Aha, there must be drugs. And I mean, right. y- they're just stuck in that. So what they really need, I think, is to cauterize it and they yeah. need a big subject change. Mm-hmm. But to the point that was was made earlier, I want to go back to it, is I think there's a huge challenge here for Republicans that we're not maybe addressing in a frontal way that we probably should, which is, yes, they're going to be able to do all these investigations, and yes, they're going to be able to ask all these questions. But let's just be clear. Republicans got a lot more concerned about the safety of top secret documents in the last five days than they had in the previous five months, Right. Nobody, nobody ever said, what, do we have visitor logs at Mar-a-Lago? I guarantee you, every clown that comes in to have dinner does not have to write their name down and be vetted mm-hmm. by the Secret Service. Okay? That's just not how a, a public club works, right? And, and when you get into, like, the COVID money, the PPP loans and the, the Small Business Administration didn't start with Joe Biden. They started with, with the Trump administration. So I think Republicans better be careful of what they wish for in 
letting these missiles loose on asking some of these questions and understanding that some of that's going to come back on them Mm -hmm. because the American people are smart enough to understand that if Republican, if all Republicans want to do right now is investigate Joe Biden and Joe Biden's family for quote unquote profiting off of government and, and an interest in top secret documents, they're, they're smart enough to understand, well, what about, what about the Trumps? Well, I think Mm -hmm. it's high time we blow the lid off the Nixon burger, by the way, I've been waiting for that from, from his brother. I'll just say in the optics of it, in the unfair world of optics, this thing starts out, Trump is rolling around in pig shit. That's Donald Trump. Biden is in a tuxedo looking like the British ambassador. At the end of it, he'll be the guy in a tuxedo also covered in pig shit. And I'm not sure that's a loss for Trump. I agree with you. Everybody gets a little bit muddy. I think the only way that the Democrats and Biden create that example is you got to get out there and explain it and and show and cleave off those differences. And, and you know, last week wasn't a great week for them in terms of handling. I agree with Doug, like having having inflation come down. Uh, actually having deflation in the last month would have been a whole lot better story uh, than trying to explain how come documents were stuffed in the glove compartment of the Corvette. Well, when in doubt, go to wag the dog. And I hear the Canadians are starting to make real trouble on the border. So it, it, <laughs> a great it, it movie if you haven't seen it. might be time to liberate Canada. Yeah, a documentary. Fabulous movie if you haven't seen it. Doug, final word. How do you think this thing plays out politically in the elections in 2024? Big issue or just more Washington crap and we're on to bigger stuff, which could be other also good or bad for Biden, because I think yeah. if he runs, I think a lot of his problems are still there, particularly age. It's clearly not a voting issue. But if this can if this goes on longer and if there are more documents and I sort of expect that there will be a fourth set of documents somewhere as they're looking in you know various places now get further. Wait a minute. I think I just found something here. <laughs> exactly. Joe Biden written on it. Hold this for me, Murphy. It's secret. That's who we're giving secret documents to, Murphy. It's you. Yeah. Oh, I, I'll tell you about my secret past once. I think to your point, you know, the tuxedo gets muddied. And it's a, it's a muddy tuxedo when, again, Biden's core promise was of competency and not making these kinds of mistakes. So right, if you go back exactly. to Afghanistan, right, it's like people say, wait a minute, you're, you were the foreign policy pros. Why is this going badly? This is that same thing that Biden personally criticized himself. That's a problem. All right, we're getting the orchestra ready, but last word, Robert Gibbs. I'm just going to say, I think that it is not too late for this White House to begin to get this story under control, but boy, it has to happen today, and I really hope Doug is wrong that there isn't a fourth set of documents. With that, cue the orchestra. It's listener mailbag. If you have a mailbag question, send it to us at our secret Hacks on Tap combination saloon and bunker. We have an email address, hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. And also, Brother Gibbs, can you give them an update on our, our bulletin newsletter, which bulletin went away, but we haven't. We're in a transition. Yeah, our bulletin uh, platform disappeared, and thus it is no longer. We have migrated over to Substack, so check us out there. We are working through getting some new content up. We'll be sending that out shortly. Uh, but do not despair. The newsletter is simply taking a long nap, uh, but it will be back before you know it. Yes. Yeah, give us a few weeks and we'll hopefully get it up and running for the year. Okay, question number one. It comes from Jennifer to the answer man, Admiral Robert Gibbs. She writes, why on earth did the Democrats not preemptively fix the debt ceiling problem before they left office when they knew full well that the Freedom Caucus hijacked house would gamble with the world economy in order to get 
their spending cuts. Well, Robert, what do you say? It sounds like that might have been a smart move. I love how you you inserted dramatic reading into Jennifer's very easy question. No, um, <laughs> I, I I don't. I, I think, quite frankly, most Democrats wanted to deal with the debt ceiling prior to the to, to the end of the last Congress and the end of the last year. I don't think many Republicans, really, in the House or the Senate, were going to have any part of uh, of wanting to have that happen. And so, uh, you know, the chicanery, we spent a lot of time talking about the rules today. Uh, I, I don't think, I think Republicans would have objected in the Senate to bringing this up. I think McConnell had said as yep. much. I, I think largely too, uh, and we've talked a bit about the theater of this today. I, I do think Republicans believed that this was a far away, not a near-term fight. This was a summer fall thing, not a February thing. And, you know, this is all going to you know, it's all going to be on full stage uh, in February 7th with the State of the Union when, when when Biden goes up to Congress to give her it. So I think they wanted to. They just weren't able to. Uh, and therefore, it you know, look, Washington is really good at punting important issues and they punted this important issue. I think the R's also thought, oh, there would be a 22 seat lead. We'll have room to maneuver a little bit and do it the right, smart way for us. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Murphy, I'm going to give you a California question. I don't know if I read it quite as dramatically as you did, but Drew asks, Mm -hmm. can you discuss the strategy behind Katie Porter announcing she's running for Feinstein's Senate seat before Feinstein announces she's retiring? Uh Aha. And during a huge flood crisis here, there was a lot of uh, political eyebrow raising in the Golden State because uh, she was out there launching a tough video on her theme. I'm a fighter. You don't like it, put them up. You know, it, trying to turn her world famous behind the scenes. What, what's the right phrase? Well, I won't get a lot of hate mail saying I'm a sexist. Let's just say she's one tough customer. And so they tried to turn that into, I'm a fighter. You know, maybe it'll work. She's a real contender. So she announced for what everybody thinks is going to be the big open Senate seat battle. And it's going to be epic in California. Now, Diane Feinstein, the incumbent, everybody's decided she isn't running except her or at least she hasn't publicly said it. So eyebrows were raised. On the other hand, over at Adam Schiff headquarters, the other major Southern California contender, they've had to get out battleship change to hold Schiff down from announcing. Because as you know, from working for a lot of politicians, both of you guys, she's getting a jump on me. I got to announce, you know, so now, and meanwhile, no voter could give a damn. They're wondering, wasn't that my uh, chair we had on the front porch floating by here during our California flood? So I don't think it was the slickest move, but she's an aggressive Paul, and that can pay off. Uh, you also, we have to see what Ro Kahana up in Silicon Valley, another Democratic member. There's a lieutenant governor. I mean, there are no shortage of people looking at this. Yeah, Barbara Lee told the Congressional Black Caucus last week she's in. Yeah, Barbara Lee is another contender. And you might have, you know, if you can unite Northern California Democrats in a primary, a splintered primary. And some people are wondering if Biden does run. Uh, And again, I'm not sure. But if Biden does run, will Gavin Newsom decide, you know, I think Washington ought to see me up close and personal. And he he could be a big gorilla in that race because, again, he's got that Northern California base. So she jumped ahead, which often pays in politics. But between the floods and the fact that Diane Feinstein hasn't really made her intentions clear, you know, Sharp Elbows magazine now has a cover story. And we'll see how that plays out for Katie Porter. And just to add a little context to this, too, I mean, remember that California, and we'll have a lot more on this, I think, over the next two years, California has an interesting primary system, right? Everybody runs in the primary, and the top two on vote one getters- one ballot, every party, everything. 
Yep. And then the top two vote getters end up in the general election. So you could conceivably have two Democrats against each other. This could be a, you know, Democrat on Democrat violence for a good two full years. Uh, You could have a Republican sneak in because we just talked about it. Maybe five Democrats split up 65% of the vote. And a Republican gets in. So uh, uh, there's And then a lot. the Republican loses in the general election. So by a lot. The smart D's are trying to figure out a campaign where on one hand they get the most lefty Democrat, on the other hand, they leave a little room on their right flank to be an acceptable alternative for Republicans, suburbanites, and and independents. But you know, when you do that, you can start losing all the the progressive votes, and then all of a sudden you're in third because some Republican on fire about the border slides in there at 27%. So complicated calculus. Katie's making a big run. I think the smart money thing shifts the front runner, but you know who knows what Gavin does, Barbara Lee, they're at Rokahana up north. A lot of moving parts to this. It's going to be one of the great axe fight Democratic uh, primaries in the current cycle. And we'll have a lot more on the Senate, uh, the politics of the Senate map. I think a lot of us were thinking the news was going to be made early on Ohio or West Virginia or Montana. Thus far, it's been in California and Michigan, two seats that uh, I don't think Democrats were all that focused on uh, uh, this early. Certainly, they believe Feinstein would retire. Let's finish it up here. Uh, Joe has a question for Doug, and I'm going to read this because this one has some quotations in it. So I want to. Uh, this is this has got more punctuation. Right, you you, you got to do the dramatic read yes. now. I've been you've been under my tutelage. Let's see right. how we do. The lesson in quotation marks we learned from the Virginia. No, Governor no, no. Or, We're going to do take two. Keep it Fox, oh, but too much sarcasm. We love our we love our questioners. Oh, sorry. The All lesson. Right. We learned good, from good. the Virginia governor's election was that tarring Republicans with the Trump MAGA label wasn't effective. Then the midterm seemed to suggest it was very effective. Doug, how can we reconcile 2021's Virginia results with the 2022 midterms? Is Yunkin just unique? And does this make him, does this make his case for a 2024 run? Great question. Yeah, I think it comes down to what Mitch McConnell said. Next, that the Quality of the candidate really makes a difference. Um, certainly Democrats tried to paint Yunkin as the, you know, the next Trump, but he was talking about general issues that affect voters. He was talking about growing jobs. He was talking about the economy. He dealt with, you know, keeping the schools open or reopening schools, which was a big issue in Virginia at the time. Um, those candidates who did badly this time were terrible candidates who could get painted with not just MAGA, but as, um, Biden would say extreme MAGA. So if we look at our gubernatorial careful or Herschel Walker is going to move a cloud over you and it'll rain. <laughs> exactly. Keep going. Chinese air. Uh, the gubernatorial candidates in Pennsylvania, in Maryland, who would say such extreme things that they didn't stand a chance almost from the day that the uh, election started. Herschel stood a chance because of his record at, at Georgia uh, in football and because he had universal name ID but ultimately wasn't able to, to get to the end yeah, zone. Yeah, then they met him. Often the yeah. problem with these things that look great on paper, and then they get out and campaign and, you know, trouble. I've always thought two things that are, I think are important in this is, one, Trump was not involved in really the selection of Yunkin as, to your point, as the nominee, right? They went through mm-hmm. a convention, not, a, not an open voting primary, which was important. And look, timing is everything in politics. And to your mm-hmm. point, this was much more, you know, this was right after Afghanistan, the general election uh, was, the, the, you know, Biden was weak. 
Uh, Yunkin, I think, is an extraordinarily talented candidate. I, I still think he is a huge sleeper for 2024 because I think he's got a unique message uh, in a way that maybe uh, DeSantis is sort of Trump without being Trump. So I, I don't I don't think you've heard the last of Glenn Youngkin. Huge legislative session in Richmond for him right now. Uh, and they just lost a special election. The Republicans did. So uh, he's going to be he's still going to be one to watch. Even if you know Virginia has off year elections, even if it were in this cycle, if you compare a candidate like Glenn Youngkin and how he campaigned versus, say, Kerry Lake, that is a night and day difference. Totally. One suggests a path forward for Republicans and one is doomsday. I'll just add the the Dems do make the mistake, which is easy to make, of wanting to run campaigns that are emotional therapy for them. Mega, mega, mega. You believe how bad he is. And if Trump is not on the ballot, which I think he's not going to be, presidential election is about the future and and careful, uh, thinking if we scream MAGA twice as loud, uh, it'll work. Uh, that That's a trap, and I think it's one of the reasons that uh, – driven by good candidate, but but that the uh, yep. the Virginia folks around Yunkin got that, including his excellent spouse, the first lady of the Commonwealth of Virginia, used to be an intern for us. And before we go, a bit of grim news. A great political journalist was lost to us, Blake Hounsell, who we all knew, we all admired. He was a machine. He'd edited foreign affairs. He was kind of one of these intellects that was curious in everything. And uh, he was at the, the time of his death running the New York Times' uh, political newsletter and doing an excellent job. So I can't tell you the amount of bipartisan email that's flying around and, and on Twitter and everywhere else where it's just such glum news. Um, and we're going to miss Blake. You know, Blake was a big listener of this podcast, a big reader of our own newsletter, and you know, often would call to say, Hey, I was listening in about minute 28, you guys were talking about, and it, it was always kind of extraordinary. As you said, he was remarkably curious. I, I would say, you know, if you wanted to know who he was uh, and you didn't go, go back and read some of the email tributes on Twitter to, or uh, the, the tributes on him on Twitter and, and the type of person he was and, and how much he cared about people. We're, we're going to miss somebody like Blake in the process. And, uh, and it, it's, it's beyond sad. I spoke to Blake about, four or five days before his passing on, on a story. And we ended with, Hey, we haven't talked in a while, you know, let's catch up more. And so I was just gutted by the fact that it was just a few days later. Yeah. He's the second friend I've lost to depression. And so by all means, if you're having those feelings or someone, you know, and love is there's help that can be reached out to. There's a way you can assist people. Don't be silent. And, uh, it's just such a tragedy, and we have too much of it now. He was young, he had a family, and uh, we will all miss him and his great talent. If you know of somebody or if you're having suicidal thoughts and need some help and need to talk to somebody, dial 988. You can talk to somebody, you'll get some help. Blake fought depression, and uh, we're the lesser because he's not here. And we hope one of the lessons we learn is to, to reach out for help, even more help, because I know he was getting it and he was giving it. But dial 988 if you're having suicidal thoughts and, and get some help. So with that sad note, uh, Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. You can be our correspondent in the House Game of Thrones in the Republican Conference because it's going to stay interesting and uh, come back. You may uh, we're, we'll get you one of those blazers you were asking for, like Wide World of Sports and maybe a flak vest too. What do you think, Robert? I'm all for it. I, uh, I I think there's nobody better to bring us the Kabuki Theater than than Doug is. And uh, great insights. Thanks for joining.
Thank you. All right, everybody. Take care. We'll see you next time. Murphy Gibbs, thanks so much. Happy to join anytime. 